Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about your points and questions, or as I'm going to call it, minding your P's and Q's. I'm sure it'll be part one of more than one. format for this particular program is going to be pretty straightforward and pretty simple. I'm going to respond to all the feedback that I've received since the very beginning. I'm going to begin with the uh, postings that have happened on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. And then I'm going to turn my attention toward email. I guess the game plan is to work the chronological order going from the very first uh, website posting to the most current and then from the most current email backwards, kind of go up up the hill from one direction and down the hill in another. So here we go. The very first posting that I've got was from Anthony. I'd gone off with the second program, and the second program was talking about the author, dealing with things from really pretty young in my school days that I thought are kind of yeah, a little bit embarrassing, a little bit hard to manage in terms of what the content might be. And Anthony wrote this. So you give us a few details about the author's works, but you don't read us even one full article? I think, I'm going, I think you're going to have to rectify this for the future. The author's writings may have been immature and childish, but so am I. <laughs> and I appreciated that. I, I made a promise to Anthony just a few days after that posting and said, you know what? There's going to be an explicit tag at some point in the history of inappropriate conversations. Hard to imagine with this particular title that there wouldn't be more actual uh, in explicit language tags along the way. And I told him, hey, the first time, or as it turned out, maybe the second time I did that, I would find a way to work in some of the author's material, because particularly back then from the, the early part of high school, anything the author did was more likely than not going to carry an explicit tag. And I believe it was in the uh, program about sex education, where I, I brought in a few bars of the contraception song, kind of as advertised. Another email that came along after number 17 from Anthony, the second one from Anthony, this was on majority rule and minority experience. And Anthony wrote this, just once, just want to say thanks for the quality podcast so far and to let you know how much I'm enjoying them. The reason I'm commenting on this episode over any of the others is because of your choice of Chuck D for the different drummer. Just as a quick aside, anyone who's scrolling through and just looking at different drummer names and comes across the name, you know, Carlton Reidenauer might not make the immediate connection that I've gone, you know, pretty contemporary picking a rapper and uh, and really speaking from the heart about it. Anthony felt the same way, picking up with his words. Public Enemy is one of those groups very close to my heart. They were the second thing after the Beastie Boys that I got into as a young teen that didn't come from my father's influence or interests. I believe that my first ever CD was also a public enemy. In fact, it was Fear of a Black Planet. P were definitely something that helped to form the person I am today. Not that I realized what made them so special at the time. Most of the lyrics went over my head, over the head of this innocent young 13-year-old. Fantastic choice of song clip, too. Possibly my favorite PE track. Anyway, keep it up. Anthony, I got to agree with you. If I could only take one Public Enemy track with me, it would be Welcome to the Terror Dome. And my first experience of a full-length album by Public Enemy was also Fear of a Black Planet. 
I'd heard many pieces of the uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, but even in a record store where you can get away with probably playing a wide variety of music, uh, we couldn't play all of, of really any of the uh, of those two CDs by Public Enemy. So by the time I figured out who they were, it really required me actually making the investment and saying, hey, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to buy this if I want to hear it all the way through. And, and that's kind of how it went for me as well. I'm not a huge rap follower. I don't have a big collection of rap music, but uh, chief among the ones that I do have is probably Public Enemy. And finally, from the website comments, Phil wrote on the uh, show for Chapter and Verse. That was a program where I shared my own poetry, but poetry with a sincere political bent about religious issues, where I essentially took to tasks people who were a little bit more interested in the legalism side of Christianity, um, have a big set of rules, have a pretty good idea of who's breaking them, and spends more time lashing out than reaching out. So from the chapter and verse topic, uh, here's what Phil had to say. How about the concept of red-letter Christian? We're reading the book and then commenting on it. C.S. Lewis is an amazing writer. Christians need to worry less about making cookie-cutter Christians, and we need to work more on bringing people into relationship with Christ. That's what matters. So it's, you know, Phil's comment. At the time, I was not familiar with the concept red-letter Christian, and it's not hard to figure out what that probably means. If you were given a Bible when I was probably given my first Bible back then, especially in the King James versions of the book, all the quotations of Christ would be in red lettering and the rest of the book would be in, you know, just your standard black, your black uh, colored typeface. So the idea of red letter Christian is um, focusing on what Jesus said and trying to do things uh, his way. And so I suppose I've been a red letter Christian for most of my life because I've always felt that at no point in time should any part of the Bible be interpreted to contradict what Jesus had to say. So I do go into the way I read scripture as scripture, not necessarily the way I read it as literature, but the way I read scripture as scripture is to begin with the assumption that Jesus is who he said he was, and therefore he's right. And when Christians get themselves into this very odd place where they interpret what Paul had to say, or what Peter or John had to say as being in conflict with Jesus, and therefore it's all the Bible and we don't know how to, we don't know how to interpret that, I think they're making a huge mistake. Um, Jesus gave us the guidelines that we need, and the other documents in the New Testament were supportive material to that. So from a red-letter perspective, I absolutely think that we've got to give the credence toward Christ. And you'll find that Jesus spends very little time talking about um, political issues. Uh, he didn't have a, uh, a soup-of-the-day mentality in terms of, of social issues that mattered. He really much spoke to reaching to the heart of people and having an eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective meant that, uh, in my opinion, the results of any one election or any one hot political potato would not matter to him as much as what lies beneath, or I would say perhaps beyond all that. So uh, Red Letter Christian uh, reads like there's a book that I should be reading here, but I'm not familiar with a book by that title. I did, however, go and do some searches online for just that exact phrase. And again, to the perspective of groups that identify themselves as red-letter Christian groups or red-letter Christian organizations, yeah, I think I'm tempted to say the world would be a better place if more Christians, especially more of the Christians who interject themselves as public figures, would think more from that perspective. So thank you, Phil. 
I wouldn't necessarily describe that as a ton of feedback, at least directly to the website. However, I'm going to turn to email now. And part of the reason that I thought to myself, yes, I really do need to provide some response to some of the feedback that I've gotten to the email address, IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com is because of one particular letter from Shane and a very early one that I'll get to at the end from Rob. But first off from Shane, if you've heard uh, one of the recent episodes of Here Goes Nothing, you've heard the gist of this letter before, but I'm going to do it the justice of reading it again and sort of, uh, at least on this particular program, from an inappropriate conversations perspective, put the perspective into the record, you know, make make a statement or or have Shane's statement in play. The uh, the dialogue comes from a conversation, sort of an offhand remark, I believe, on Here Goes Nothing, which, if you haven't heard it, is available on www.simplysyndicated.com. It's a show that's almost beyond description. It's a lot of fun. Uh, everything from uh, martial arts reviews to good and bad film reviews, beer reviews, uh, just, just a lot of fun. But there was an offhand comment, a little rant, a little mini rant about the American dream and how America probably needs to uh, rethink our our rampant, out-of-control materialism. And that led to some online replies, and I'm going to get to one of those those replies directly to Here Goes Nothing here in just a moment. But first, here, here are Shane's thoughts on the matter. Hi there, Greg. Shane here. I'm currently plowing my way through the, the backlog of your shows, and after listening to your show on qualifications to be president... It put me in mind of a topic that has been rattling around in my brain for a while now. The American Dream. Let me state that my opinion is that of an outsider. I've never been to America and can't possibly know the specifics of the general mindset of an entire nation, so I apologize if some of what I say sounds stereotypical. It seems to me that America is a country founded on extremely high ideals. That is understandable. When you think of all the violence and bloodshed that the nation was forged out of, After coming through colonialism, slavery, and civil war, it makes sense that America looks at itself like a country emerging from the darkest clouds to now bask in the sunshine. No wonder that certain sections of its public think of it as innately the greatest place in the world. It's come through so much that you could argue that it has earned this title. Also, it's easy for it to have a reputation for being narrow-minded simply because of its size. I know there is a statistic that roughly 30% of Americans owning passports, but when your own nation is so big, it can be a leap just to contemplate looking elsewhere for life experience, and not owning a passport doesn't necessarily or automatically make you stupid. So while constructing a constitution that in theory appeals to the very highest ideals of humankind is admirable, it strikes me as a little naive. But then, this is a pessimistic Brit talking. Let me interrupt there for a second and say, yeah, it, it took me a while before I picked up a passport. My passport has not uh, gotten anywhere near the point of needing to be renewed. Now, part of that is because, yes, with a country the size of America, you can do one heck of a lot of traveling and never actually leave the borders that you're in. You put that together with the sheer expense of, of how far you have to go to travel internationally. But also when you think of how the laws used to work before 9-11, even as recently as 1997, given 1995 to 1997, somewhere in that ballpark, I was able to travel to the Caribbean and to Mexico without any need for having a passport at all. Um, now, when you're part of a cruise ship cruise line scenario, you know, the, the guidelines are a little bit different. But I've been to Mexico on, on a couple of occasions before then. Again, no need for a passport. 
and to Canada a couple of times as well. It was really only after 9-11 that traveling in the North American continent required any kind of identification to cross a border. When it comes to crossing oceans, I would love to do that sort of traveling. However, the biggest impediment was never the question of whether I was going to get a passport or not. The biggest impediment is just flat out the expense. So I imagine there's probably a lot of Americans who've set more modest travel goals, like being able to visit each one of the 50 states and not visit in the sense that you had a layover at the airport, but actually visit, you know, to actually see the terrain. And, uh, you know, with, this, with a country this size, that in and of itself might take a lifetime to achieve. Back to Shane's points. I sympathize with the intentions. After fighting so long for independence, it makes sense that you would want to ensure that your country makes the most of its newfound freedom. But it fails to take the inherent nature of our species into account. Comedian Dave Chappelle does a great routine of how people like George Washington would espouse equality for all in one sentence and then bark orders at his black slaves in another. Appealing to the best nature of 300 million people is one thing. Legislating for them is another. It's simply not possible for so many people to all be good, virtuous, decent, and tolerant. And the law of averages states that some of these people will always end up in high office, in positions of real power and influence. America seems to aspire to be the best, and maybe that's the problem. Eddie Izzard talks about how America has its dream, but in Europe, our dream is every country speaking a different language and hating each other. It's not much, but we've managed to achieve ours. Aspiring to be great is a wonderful thing, but thinking you're great by right is not. Apart from everything else, it breeds denial. How else could you account for the way its economy was allowed to deteriorate, how ill people were turned away from hospitals just because they were poor, or had the temerity to get sick early in their lives, or its horrible treatment of its gays as well as its Hispanic and Middle Eastern population? Now, I'm not saying America is a bad place to live. There's many things that it's done better than anyone and many things that it still does very well. How could you hate on a country that gave the world Spinal Tap? Meaning, this is Spinal Tap, the film. But living by ideals means you'll always be onto a loser. We don't live in an ideal world. We, we never will do. If America could accept that and try to make the best of things as they are, they could get themselves back on track again. The keys in the phrase, the American dream. Maybe it's time for America to wake up. As I said, despite its, the length of this email, I can't proclaim to be an expert. It's one man's viewpoint who lives a long, long way away. Anyways, love the show and hope to hear plenty more from you in the future. I actually want to stop for a second and share one of the very first pieces of feedback I got, which also was from Shane. I think I'd probably just made the announcement that the first episode was coming out, and he had this to say. Really glad you've got an outlet for your musings, Greg. I always thought it was weird that you never had a show of your own. If you're ever short on someone to record a show with, consider me available when I'm not working. I've only got Skype as well as my mic, so I don't know if, if you need anything a bit more high-tech. Anyway, always here to help if you need it. Shane. Now, Shane's a great guy, and I'm about to offer some responses to his point of view. But first, let me talk about one of the reasons that this show is a relatively low-tech itself, essentially a one-speaker program. Part of it is that I think that at least for me at this point in time, what I'm trying to do is kind of gather the, the ideas that are flying around in my head, capture a few of them in a net if I can, and, and, and put them on display or uh, put a pin in them, at the very least. And the other part is I'm relatively low-tech as well. At some point, I will have my first Skype call with someone, but that 
conversation is almost surely going to be recorded by the person on the other end because that's kind of the limit of uh, I'm exercising on an every weekly basis the limit of my technical skills, I'm afraid. Sad but true. Well, before I take on the concept of whether America needs to wake up from the uh, from the dream, let me first talk a little bit about what I think is the best answer I've heard. And I'm going to talk about why it's a good answer, but I'm also going to talk about why I think it's not a good enough answer. And I apologize in advance for not remembering the name of the letter writer. It wasn't a letter sent to me. It was a letter sent to the show Here Goes Nothing. As again, a lot of this controversy bubbled up from just a very offhand sort of comment on that program. Somebody from America wrote into the British show and said, hey, you got this whole American dream idea all wrong. The American dream is not about materialism. It's not about greed. It's not about thinking that we're better than we are. It's not something that has a lot of pride to it. The American dream was essentially this notion that we ought to have the ability to be self-sufficient. We ought to have the freedom to do what it is that we want. I've heard it described pretty well by the author of Remix. His name is Leonard Lessing. And in writing about uh, the current state of the music industry and um, you know the copyright laws, we know it. He basically made the argument that at the time of colonial America, the whole notion of freedom of the press, the whole First Amendment concept was not about what we would call newspapers today, certainly had nothing to do with what we would call the uh, the media with a capital M of you know, large organizations like Fox or CNN. At the time, the press that the First Amendment was specifically written to help keep, quote unquote, free was what we might call bloggers today, the pamphleteers. And the blogosphere have a lot in common in the sense that you've got a lot of independent voices, some with some sort of journalistic skill, but many without, some with a very uh, strong sense of objectivity and fairness, but most truly without. And it was protecting the rights of individuals to say what they would, both on the street corner and in writing. So he writes about that and he basically says, listen, you know, one of the problems with the uh, one of the problems that the big record companies have with the music industry today is that with so much music happening online and with digital copies being so free and easy to move around and to literally quote unquote file share, it's very hard for any individual artist to become the next you know billionaire you know musical force. That perhaps is a negative. On the positive side, however, what you've got is a much easier landscape for anyone whether talented or not, to pick up a musical instrument and to get a microphone and to create music that they can share with others. And what this does is with websites like lulu.com and other resources, it is possible for somebody to make you know either a set of MP3 files or even a CD for that matter, where the audience, worldwide audience, might only be you know, a couple thousand people at the most. And in the past, if you only had the ability to sell 2,000 copies of something that you were recording, you weren't going to get signed and you weren't going to get distributed. And the odds of the right 2,000 people finding your music, pretty darn slim. But in the current landscape, despite all of the questions that are up around, you know, copyrights and rights of artists and compensation for artists and all those sort of questions, we still are in a situation where we may not be able to fulfill one version of the American dream, the American dream where somebody becomes, you know, the next, you know, Prince or the next Michael Jackson. But we're certainly fulfilling the American dream for lots and lots of other people who really may only have intended their music to reach the right 400 people. And in our current landscape, 
we've got a better situation for that artist than we have had at any other time in the history of the world, perhaps. Certainly any other time in the history of the big media. So why do I bring that up here in the conversation about the notion of what the American dream is? Well, first off, I'm saying the same thing that that person who wrote into Here Goes Nothing said. The American dream was never about this notion of becoming the next Michael Jackson or the next Prince. The American dream was always about the idea of having the ability, the freedom, or at least having no one standing in your way from writing down your own version of the next, you know, the next great novel. And if it's only great in the eyes of three people, you ought to be able to write it, and you ought to be able to self-publish it, and you ought to be able to hand those three people a copy of it. That's what the American dream is really all about. However, I'll be the first to acknowledge that that is what we call a negating answer. That answer doesn't work, and the reason the answer doesn't work is that even though it may be factually accurate, it sort of shuts down the conversation completely because it assumes that the version of the American dream that Casey on Here Goes Nothing was complaining about and that Shane here, who you know some of you may know from the uh, Greatest Events in Sporting History podcast, was complaining about, well, you know, they're not wrong. They had a very good point to make. There is right now a lot of ridiculously over-the-top nationalistic pride and an overwhelming dose of materialist greed. And if we look at the American dream from the perspective of it meaning those things and not perhaps what it always really has truly meant, it doesn't dismiss the argument that those other things, the things Shane's writing about here, are wrong and need to be addressed. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! Okay, a couple specific points on what Shane has to say. First, let me deal with the question of the way our government works, because I think there probably is a fundamental misunderstanding internationally about what the U.S. Constitution truly is about and about what it's manifest itself to be today. So let me kind of draw that distinction. And again, I may be making the same mistake of saying, yes, over here, I'm going to grant you that there's a problem, but the problem isn't real. Yeah, the problem's real. So let me let me cover this somewhat comprehensively. I don't think the U.S. Constitution is in any way uh, overly optimistic. In some ways, it's a very pessimistic document. When you think about it, the Constitution is written with checks and balances, balances and power. It's evolved to the point where it has term limits for presidents. I look forward to the day when it has term limits for those in Congress as well, both senators and representatives. And I'm frankly beginning to get a much more open mind about whether we should consider some sort of term limits for judges. So as it's evolved, it's evolved through this, this cynicism, which basically says no earthly ruler can be trusted. And therefore, if the president has the power to do these three or four things, Congress has the power to supervise that, to provide the advice and consent against it. And if the Congress oversteps its power, the courts are there to essentially strike down any legislation that they pass, which contradicts with the heart of our country. So the Congress can, in point of fact, pass unconstitutional legislation. It happens. Happens perhaps more often at the state legislative level for state constitutional rights being violated. But the courts are there to step in. 
Now, I'm not saying that it works perfectly, but what I'm saying is, as a construct, rather than being built uh, on this idea that you know everything's great and that you know, that we've got this new system and this new system is perfect, the new system was built out of an incredible amount of mistrust of any sort of human leadership. Now, the fact is that our current constitutional form of government has somewhat more trusting nature to what what governing is all about than the original Articles of Confederation did. But I think you get a sense if you look at all toward the differences between the Articles of Confederation and the U.S. Constitution as we know it, you see that in there, there was such a distrust of government, such an incredible cynicism that at the time, uh, we created a central government that didn't even have the power to govern. And the uh, current Constitution is only a few steps short of that. Uh, as a nation, the Bill of Rights was signed actually with those 10 First Amendments in place, and every one of them was like, we don't think this Constitution is sufficient enough to stop police from illegal searches. We don't think this Constitution is sufficient enough on its face to stop people from being you know, unfairly imprisoned or imprisoned for unreasonable amounts of time or tortured when they're there. And all those, uh, you look at all the Bills of Rights, each one of those constitutional amendments represents just one more layer of what I would describe as the distrust of human nature. So what's gone wrong? Well, essentially, to just to use a whole bunch of very hasty generalizations and perhaps even mild factual inaccuracies, somewhere in the Roaring Twenties, this nation got what I would call a tremendous sense of entitlement. And you had this idea that because things were going well and because we didn't really have that sort of war problem that Europe did with the First World War. And we sort of came in at the last minute to, you know, to, to pitch in and you know, put things over the top. And you know, we got we to show up when most of the bloodshed was over and declare victory. Not that the American participation wasn't incredibly bloody because it was. But the bottom line is you had this whole notion during the Hoover administration, right before the stock market crashed, where you hear slogans like, you know, a chicken in every pot and, you know, this, this idea that, that um, things were going extremely well and Americans had a right to their prosperity. Now, obviously, the Great Depression and the Second World War set all that on its heels. But shortly after the Second World War, America picked right back up where it was again with this notion that everyone had their, their right to their suburban home with its two-car garage and all that, all that sort of thing. One of the ways you keep a system like that afloat is by propping up your economy, and our economy has essentially been propped up with Cold War-based military spending for the entirety of my lifetime. And one of the ways that you keep uncontrolled spending in place is by making sure that you abrogate all of the checks and balances that are there. So again, the Constitution is a document, America is an idea, really built with all the right kinds of checks and balances in place. But if you can freely elect your local representative and your state senator year after year after year for decades for the entire life of that person probably a man do you have a legislative representative a freely elected representative or do you have a de facto despot of some sort do you have some sort of an emperor and this was kind of the the one gut check moment during that entire post-war period where i think we did get it right was to say hey we just elected a president for four terms and somehow, because of his popularity and because of his incumbency and because of fears of World War II and not wanting to make a change in your government right in the middle of, of, of a conflict on two fronts, a military conflict like that, America came to the aftermath of that and said, no, George Washington voluntarily stepped down after his second term of office. That was a pretty good example. And let's just put that right into law. So you have this, this kind of last gasp 
of what I would call the reasoned approach to the way we ought to be governed. And ever since then, even though we have term limits in place, the money has corrupted the system so fully and completely. And um, the money has led the two quote-unquote political parties that run everything to fix the deal for the most part, kind of rule out or marginalize as much as possible any third-party participation or even any outside ideas being introduced into these two political parties that they're sort of running on autopilot. And it's not an autopilot that allows the voices of dissent. So everything that Shane has mentioned from a political perspective in his in his email is absolutely correct. But it's not the fault of the way America is designed. America is designed that if we were operating the way we were intended to operate as a nation, we would not be in the case we are today. We would not be in a situation where the president was able to go to war on two fronts without even the vote of Congress supporting him going to war, where um, the declaration of war left the Congress and moved into some really strange combination of executive branch ultimatums and, you know, and um, just an abrogation of the legislative authority. Those sort of things would not have happened. I, I, in my opinion, if we had uh, elected politicians who weren't more interested in getting reelected than truly governing. So, again, the American dream is not broken down because of the idea. It's broken down because of the execution. This is clearly true in the economy as well. I mentioned the economic impact a little bit earlier when talking about, you know, what does it mean to bring GIs back from the war and try to convert yourself from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy? All of the money spent um, sending all of those guys to college, not a bad idea. In fact, a really good idea. But we hit a point in the 50s and 60s where we had reached the level of sustainability. In the late 60s and 70s, it became apparent that the whole idea of a one-earner a one-earner home income wasn't going to get the job done. And at that point, we began in the 70s and since propping ourselves up with, with an economic model that required everyone in the home to work to contribute in terms of trying to maintain the same standard of living that we had before. And yet... Because of the advances in technology and the way our economy is operated, we've had this sense that we continue to do better and better and better. I would compare it to the way the box office statistics work, where in the movie theater business, no one really reports the attendance in the actual number of people sitting in chairs. The attendance figures and your, your boffo box office you know, kind of talk comes from the dollars that are being spent. And you end up with a weird situation where as long as you raise the ticket prices enough year over year, you actually can lose viewership year over year and pretend that the box office is better than it's ever been before. When you you know, adjust for inflation and all those other sort of things, your number one movie of all time is an Avatar. It's not Titanic. It's still something made years ago, like Gone with the Wind or Jaws. And it's a similar problem in terms of what happens when your economy is propped up because of the way we measure things. And, and uh, this is not my area of specialty, but in the United States, we've spent some time talking about the unemployment statistics being lower than they were in pre-World War II America. But that's because we've changed the way we count those statistics. And if you count the statistics the exact same way we used to, we're not in anywhere near as good a shape as we used to be. So Shane makes economic arguments and says, hey, you guys are fooling yourselves. You know that, don't you? Well, if, if that's kind of... You know, written between the lines of the email that he sent, again, he's probably onto something there. We've been fooling ourselves, though, for my entire lifetime, so it's kind of hard for people who are my age to see the difference. Finally, having said that, I think I would quarrel with the expression, or at least with the choice of words, about America allowing its economy to, to deteriorate. 
I don't think we allowed our economy to deteriorate. I think the deterioration of the economy was a, was a correction and that in many ways was truly genuine, not something that could have been avoided, which is kind of what it sounds like when you, when, you, when you look at it from the perspective of, well, did we let this happen? I don't think that we let this happen. I think that this was in some ways an economic inevitability. When it comes to ill people being turned away from hospitals just because they're poor um, or just because they had the temerity to get sick earlier in their lives, you know, we're a weird bunch. Um, that's an anecdotal example, and I'm sure that for every one of those, somebody could produce an anecdotal example of cases where hospitals essentially take care of people who they know are uninsured, and they know will never be able to pay, and they simply do the right things. Uh, my perspective is, and it's probably a biased perspective, uh, my father worked in hospitals, um, my brother has spent time there, my mother was a nurse, I've got some familiarity with with the heart and soul of that particular line of work. And I think what you're going to find is that most of the time, at least you know, when you get to that emergency room level, you get to what hospitals, the level of care hospitals try to provide, I don't think that hospitals can be portrayed necessarily the way they are in films like The Hospital. The 1971 film by Arthur Hiller, uh, written by Patty Chayefsky, was truly a, a black comedy, a black satire with lots of exaggeration. Um, for the most part, if, if you've been seriously injured and you show up in an emergency room, you're going to get care. You're going to get the best available care. Whether it's truly good enough or not is depends, of, of course, on circumstance. But I don't think that necessarily your economic, your economic conditions don't come into play there. There are, however, situations where the way we manage our health insurance absolutely does put people in horrific situations, which I'm certain by European uh, perspective are ghastly and completely unacceptable, um, simply because somebody leaves one job and goes to another, particularly if it's not voluntary. If you're laid off from one job and you pick up work at another and don't remain part of the very large unemployment statistics or even the hidden unemployment statistics, to lose your ability to get the medicine you need simply because you left one employer and went to another employer has got to be monstrously confusing to anybody who isn't an American. And I think the only reason Americans accept this is because, again, the system has been in place this way for so long We've completely lost sight of whether it makes sense or not. As Americans, we're not necessarily that good at asking ourselves questions about whether the way things are is the way things ought to be. So that's an obvious weakness. Our record when it comes to race relations is is pretty dim. I've already talked about that with <clears throat> a little bit from the perspective of the, uh, the majority rule and the minority experience show. I don't know that we necessarily single out our Hispanic and our Middle Eastern countrymen so much as we single out our African-American countrymen. I mean, our treatment of blacks is abysmal. Our treatment of Native Americans probably the worst of all. And our treatment of gays is something where I think as a nation we're still trying to figure out who we are. We're not very good at having the open dialogue that we need to come to a conclusion about who we truly are. And I think that right now we're in one of those infancy stages where we as a nation can do better than we're doing right now, but the worst part about it for me is actually the denial. If you look internationally at some of the things that have just recently been said in Germany, we're not the only country that's trying to figure out how to make, how to make immigrant populations work. I suppose that the, the perception internationally that America is treating Hispanic people horribly probably comes from the rhetoric that you see, especially on programs, you know, some of the news network kind of programs about illegal aliens, but I do not believe that right now illegal aliens are being treated as badly as uh, black citizens were early in, my, or early in my lifetime and as the Native Americans have historically been. I think a lot of that is a lot of rhetoric, 
where the truth is, um, again, we as a nation don't know where we stand on these issues, and it's in those moments of indecision that you see a lot of people's worst behavior and worst character traits come to the fore. So does America need to wake up from a, a dream that was too idealistic to be workable? I don't think that's the problem. Because, again, I agree with, uh, with earlier people who have spoken to the issue to say, hey, the American dream is actually uh, somewhat more cynical than it's been described as being, and certainly a lot more open-minded than what you tend to see, again, if you're watching the news programs from across the ocean. No, I think it's more about America actually trying to get back to living up to what those original ideals were. We do not necessarily accept that just because somebody is in political office and has a huge war chest of funds that they're destined to be there forever. Um, we, we need to get to the point where we're actually willing to execute our checks and balances within our system of government. And if we're not capable of getting that done because of the way money seems to corrupt everything, then we need to execute those checks and balances as citizens in the street um, and at the voting booth. And if we don't get the support of the media, because the media seems to be very interested in propping up the two main political parties, then I think that we've got to turn once again to the pamphleteers who, in this day and age, probably work more on, on blogs on the Internet than in what we might have considered to be a traditional newsletter or zine or pamphlet. One last thought on the matter, just, because, just in case Americans feel I'm being too harsh about our country, I think it goes without saying that Fox News is much more interested in the success and the interests of the Republican Party than any independent voice that's out there. And the entire Tea Party movement, as I've said before, is nothing more than uh, a f uh, the soup of the day flavor of what Republican of what the Republican Party is about. It can pretend to be, you know, crossing party lines, but it's crossing party lines perhaps by picking up a lot of racism. Maybe crossing party lines from people who are completely disenfranchised with government on the whole, but don't understand that walking away from both political parties is a more meaningful protest than switching from Democrat to Republican and back and forth. I've played that game, and I'm done playing that game. But on the other end of it, I'm not one of those people who looks at the, the rest of the media and says, well, see, those are the liberal elites and they're out of control and Fox News has to establish a check and a balance. I don't believe that. However, what I do believe is this. On election night a couple of years ago, when the election returns were coming in, there's only one major network in the United States of America that even printed on any routine basis the voting results of the presidential candidates who were not Republican or Democrat. There was only one network that showed what I would consider to be a much more full picture of who people were voting for. There's only one place I could go to see whether Ralph Nader was going to get enough of a percent of the vote to pick up the kind of momentum that the, the independent movement would really need when we get to 2012. Can you guess the name of that network? It's Fox News. <laughs> Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Okay, on to more feedback from Tony Pucci, who has a couple of different shows out there that I listen to every single time I get the chance. Fatal Interview 
and um, the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast, the latter of which, a music show, can be found on www.simplysyndicated.com. Tony, at least last I saw it, a centralized website at TonyPucci.com for kind of all the projects that he's working on. Uh, he spells his name T-O-N-Y-P-U-C-C-I, TonyPucci.com. He wrote in, and this was a few episodes in, I'm going to say probably came along after a dozen shows, give or take. He writes this, Greg, I owe you an apology, even though you don't know it. I enjoyed your first IC podcast, but for an audio geek like me, I cringed a little bit at the audio quality. Hey, Tony, you and me both. I knew you'd improve, but in my busyness and such, and for that one little reason, I ignored your show, even though I was uh, subscribed to it and have all your shows. Well, yesterday I listened to quite a few of them, and I have to say I very much enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. All the best with it in the future. I appreciate your open-minded approach to life, even though there is one glaring fundamental difference between us, but I'm cool with that. It's all about how you treat others. That is my measuring stick. I do believe that faith, understanding, and security are fundamental parts of human existence, and it is how individuals and groups define that for themselves that I find fascinating. I really appreciate Tony coming along. You know, coming along at that moment when I probably needed a little bit of a, a little bit of, a, of an encouragement, because I knew the first couple of shows probably had some serious sound quality issues, and it probably took me quite a while to get to the point where I was comfortable even trying to to reproduce the kind of steps you need to have any sort of consistency in sound, consistently good or consistently, you know, average at best, perhaps. So it took me a little while to get all that squared away, and. Um, Again, and it's just natural for me to be a little bit more about what I want to say and to hope that the how it sounds or how it comes out, the technical side, hopefully that just all shakes out. It's kind of my perspective. I definitely understand where Tony's coming from when he talks about that one primary difference of opinion. But, you know, when you think about the political spectrum, when you look at the, the bottom end of it where the political pragmatism happens, which is really, to me, the, the, dirty, the dirtiest part of that spectrum, when you get up to the upper end of it where radical right and radical left meet, you know, those extremes are not that far from each other. And, um, you know, I probably would 100% agree with Tony's accounts of individual experiences he's had that have made him feel like he just doesn't have any time or patience for any sort of organized church. I've heard that from some other friends as well. And it's something that I think that the church has to deal with because the issue um, with religion being, um, you know, well, religion with a capital R just being an issue it's one of the things that uh, Rick Moyer talks about in his Take Him With You podcast, that uh, as believers, in whatever it is you believe in, your belief system needs to be much more about the spirituality behind those beliefs than it does about the religion that, that sort of has developed on top of it. That, uh, for me, the notion that religion is the uh, building of, that rests on the, the foundation of spirituality is, is also just a little bit off-putting. And, and for and Tony's perspective, a lot off-putting. Because what really and truly matters is the spirit behind it. Or in my case, the Holy Spirit behind it. Here's a quick one from Elton McManus. Elton, uh, along with Scott Copperman, are hosts of the Apotheosis of a Bombast um, podcast. And really, one of the podcasts that I, I find to be the most frustrating, and I'll tell you why. It's frustrating to me that I don't understand why Zune, which is the product that I carry with me, that's the MP3 player I listen to, misses shows like this, and that they don't become part of the podcast menu. So what I end up doing is I end up going to iTunes and um, you know buying the occasional track up there. I mean, I'm, I would consider myself a customer, 
but I specifically go there to try to download programs like Fatal Interview and Apotheosis of a Bombast because those two things are not part of what Zune calls its marketplace yet. Drives me crazy. There is absolutely no reason why that program shouldn't be standing side by side with things like Here Goes Nothing as, as things that you can get you know, through, the, through my podcatcher. My podcatcher, for whatever reason, is ignoring the apotheosis of a, bon, of a bombast show. It shouldn't, neither should you. Here's what Elton wrote. Hey, just a quick hi, and congrats on a great show. Loving the style and content. Keep up the good work, sir, and thanks for putting a link to our show on your page. Um, that's one of the things. If you haven't been to the Podbean site for inappropriate conversations, I would encourage you to do so if only to look, to look at the links. Because I don't spend um, I don't spend that much time outside of promos um, recommending these things, and there are probably links on the website that I haven't got a promo for, or I haven't played a promo for. But if I put a promo on the inappropriate conversation show, that's not random and haphazard, and it's not straight quid pro quo. Even if there's no reciprocity to it because of the format of the other show, doesn't matter to me. I'm playing promos of programs that I love and that I enjoy. Some of the reasons may be confusing. Uh, I probably have some people who listen who would totally understand the Take Him With You podcast, but not have the first clue about what to do with a show like Here Goes Nothing. Um, I'm hoping that that's sort of the the weird and unique gumbo that is Greg. And, And I thank Elton for his comments. You know, I've always gotten the impression with some of the shows that I enjoyed, you know, does a letters program or an email response program, that it, it takes longer than they expected it to. And I think for the first time I'm experiencing exactly what they were thinking because a lot of the things that I've gotten in feedback have been very thought-provoking, and if I reply the way I'd like to, uh, here we are with what is proving to be a much longer program than I would have imagined. So I want to thank Tom and some other people that I'm not responding directly to uh, because I need to jump forward and, and kind of hit the last letter that I want to reply to in order to have time for a different drummer this week. So the last letter is actually, I think, probably the first piece of feedback that I received. It's from Rob, and I'm going to read it through. I'm going to do my best with it. And then I'm going to offer uh, a response that is nowhere near uh, as lengthy or detailed as it should be. (laughs) Confession right up front. Hi, Greg. It is a wonderful thing that you're making yourself heard through this DIY medium. I'm all about the do-it-yourself. Your thought about the existence of a form of absolute truth is intriguing. I'm not entirely certain whether this is down to your religious intuition or for other reasons. As an incipient student of philosophy, I am faced with these enigmas on a weekly basis, every waking hour in some ways. Whether there is any absolute truth, moral good, or those sorts of perennial questions. It could be asserted that the rampant relativism amongst my coevals is not exactly a commendable thing. I sense that a lot of the university courses that I follow or have followed, are tarnished with a repugnant breed of postmodernistic nihilism, inferred from reading materials and lectures. Questions about the possibility of an immaterial soul are swept under the carpet, as if they are not alive today, but they are. Personally, as a former atheist and advocate of scientism, I am now perched on the rickety fence that is threatening to collapse. Moving away from home and an influential father has uprooted most of my latterly held beliefs, Should I believe or not, or remain agnostic and purposeless? There is such a morass of questions involved in coming to a rational resolution and to avoid venturing a witless jump onto the bandwagon like I did with my admittedly fickle atheist convictions. Recently I came across a passage in Seneca's Letters from Stoic, a book that I take great pleasure and consolation from, which brought me right back to childhood when I was still under the watchful eye of some adults. 
I've been mulling over this painfully simple and obvious argument Seneca made and reckon it bears some significance to your podcast. Don't ask me why. Here's the quote. You demand an account of my days, generally as well as individually. You think well of me if you suppose that there is nothing in them for me to hide. And we should, indeed, live as if we were in public view, and think, too, as if someone could peer into the inmost recesses of our hearts, which someone can. For what is it to be gained if something is concealed from man when nothing is barred from God? He is present in our minds, in attendance in the midst of our thoughts, although by attendance I do not mean to suggest that he is not, you know, at times, absent from our thoughts. What really ruins our character is the fact that none of us look back over his life. We think about what we are going to do, and only rarely of that, and fail to think about what we have done. Yet any plans for the future are dependent on the past. There's the quote. Back to Rob. Even as a searching agnostic or a dogmatic atheist, this can be a forceful principle to live by. I do realize that without the divine element, it becomes merely subjective morality. Nonetheless, I think it is a practical tool which can be consistently utilized to assay yourself more candidly. Reading Seneca invariably is con confrontational and edifying. Often, with all the material distractions and media at our disposal, it is easy to forget ourselves. Seneca's ideas are undeniably of value, even today, and I wish I had read and listened to him years ago. I speculate that his contemporary vitality may be due to the tenuous parallels between Roman decadence and the putative one of our consumer society. I thank that insane teacher Montaigne for introducing me to the hypocrite Seneca. There are more points I wanted to make about the show's contents, but it has become a lengthy email. Do not feel obliged to send a response. Time on this planet is too scarce. If you wish, you can discuss this letter or the gist of it in your podcast. Kind regards, Rob. Well, Rob, I guess that's exactly what I'm going to do, although surely not going to do the letter justice. Perhaps to Seneca's delight, I suppose I am one of those people who does spend a good amount of time trying to get a sense of where I've come from, um, what led me here. Obviously, the last program that I put up, uh, dealing with recollections, may almost embarrassingly deal with the amount of time that I spend sort of wrestling with my memories. Part of that, though, is just, I think in general, working in retail and working in a, the planning side of retail where you're trying to forecast what's going to happen and and schedule wisely and you know and so forth you end up with this notion that, that i heard probably in the first couple of years of my experience trying to trying to work in this business that uh, if you don't know where you've been you'll never know where you're going the idea that you have to have a plan or you're never going to get there or if you even arrive by chance or by luck how will you know that what you arrived at was actually what you planned to arrive at so being a planner by nature I am very sensitive to the idea that you really do have to understand your past. The other thing, and it may help explain why I'm maybe more comfortable than some other people have been with the single speaker podcast format. And uh, this is not the kind of program that is ever going to create loads of, of you know, ribald entertainment. Although, again, I'm thinking in terms of Anthony, I have quoted the author at least once. And I think I'm most likely to uh, really gone there in terms of saying, hey, let's have some fun with this. Let's let's, you know find a bit more of an edge than I normally produce. But I think part of the reason I'm relatively comfortable speaking on my own and sharing my thoughts into what might be perceived as nothing and nothing more than a microphone is that as a Christian, I feel like I've got another, another ongoing dialogue that's there. 
I, I'm very uncomfortable, to be honest, with people who don't have any sense that, that they have a conscience that, that is their guide, so to speak. I uh, frankly deeply resent the idea that some Christians express that unless you are a Christian, you don't have a conscience. I, I, I'd reject that idea point blank. And I also believe that, frankly, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts rejects that idea point blank. I think all of us demand an account of our days, at least from ourselves. Most of us have this sense that there's a part of our life that is truly not concealed. That on some level, again, even, even if you're an atheist, even if you're an agnostic, on some level, you've got a part of your brain that is looking for the judge's scorecard. Um, you may not see it. You may have doubts that it's actually a real thing to be concerned about. But most of us have this sense, and whether you call it conscience or whether you actually invest in it and say, hey, I believe the things that I've experienced have a great deal of weight and validity to them, and therefore um, my prayer life has grown and expanded to the point where I'm very comfortable being very open with those things that I feel the Spirit is leading me to do. So how does that apply to the concept of truth, which is really the only piece of this that I intended to, to try to reply to? And it's, I can hit this in a couple of ways. I can use another negating argument, like I talked about with Shane's letter, where it's really easy to just say, well, that's not the American dream. This is end of discussion. Um, because what you tend to see people in an apologetic kind of conversation, in sort of a uh, defense of the faith conversation do, is at least sort of demonstrate that really, with the exception of those people, I think, who are really committed to Eastern uh, worldviews, uh, you know, the religions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, most people don't live their lives as if everything's relative. Uh, most people do not live their lives as if they don't believe in truth. If the bank rips you off through some sort of an embezzlement scheme or, or an accounting error, you don't just shrug it off and say, well, you know what? Numbers are numbers. None of them have meaning. But yeah, it's too easy. Um, to me, I think the, the different accounting of it is to say, let's say that there are certain things that your average person is going to acknowledge as concrete. And there are certain other things which fall beyond the realm of the five sentences, the observational qualities the people have a tendency to be extremely skeptical of. And the only thing that I would say is that we don't know everything we need to know. And the only reason we know the things that we do know today is because those who have handed down that knowledge to us believed in truth. If the science that was recorded early on, that was then later challenged by some of the people that we consider the giants of science today, who, by the way, have produced science that the giants of science tomorrow are going to challenge and push back to, um, those people believed in truth. And I don't know how you advance to the point we are now if you don't believe in truth. And I don't know how you get where you're going in the future without believing in truth. Cuts right back to that idea of, of planning. If you don't know where you've been, will you know where you're going? Do we believe in the truth of where we've been? And if we don't, what does that say about us? But to turn it on its head, if we do believe in the truth of where we've been, then there has to be at least the acknowledgement that there is a truth in where we are going. I skipped over him earlier when I was talking about the things that I truly believe in because it served my purposes better to make a reference to Dr. Larry Crabb. I could have just as easily, though, Spoken about things that I think are true by talking about Hank Hanegraaff. Why does he come to mind when I'm dealing with this particular topic? Well, one reason is that the tagline to his website, www.equip.org, is because truth matters. 
And one of the things that his organization, the Christian Research Institute, stands for is the validity of truth and using truth to stand up to many of the false ideas which have created a good deal of havoc in the world today. There's a lot of people who believe that Christianity is the source of all evil, but I don't think that they truly invest themselves in that point of view. When you compare you know, um, the Christian worldview with the worldview of, of some of the cults that are out there, or some of the great incredible damage that has been done to our world in the last hundred years by people like Stalin and Hitler and Mao, uh, give me a Christian worldview any day of the week. Now, I'd prefer to have a true Christian worldview, accurately expressed, more of a red-letter Christian perspective, doing it Jesus' way and not necessarily Jerry Falwell's way, just to drop a name. But I think Hank Hanegraaff agrees with me. One of the things that I like most about Hank Hanegraaff is that he not only stands up for Christianity, he stands up to Christianity as well. The Christian Research Institute has an unwavering commitment toward orthodox Christian belief. That means that as often as it stands toe-to-toe with people who would espouse a different worldview or a different world religion, he much more often ends up standing toe-to-toe with what I would describe as aberrant Christian theology. Christian television today is so far afield of what red-letter Christians should be about that it's almost, well, it bears, it bears out the idea that maybe Christianity is already in the midst of a schism. We're just not honest enough with ourselves to call it what it is. Here's a little bit from the bio page of that website. Hank Hanegraaff serves as president and chairman of the board of the North Carolina-based Christian Research Institute. He is also host of the Bible Answer Man radio, pro- radio program, which is also released as a podcast. That's how I found Hank Hanegraaff, by listening to the Bible Answer Man radio show on the drives to and from work. And when that particular show was pulled off the air in the city that I live in, I went and found the podcast. Hank is widely regarded as one of the world's leading Christian apologists, deeply committed to equipping Christians to be so familiar with the truth that when counterfeits loom on the horizon, they recognize them instantaneously. Through his call-in, radio broadcast. He equips Christians to read the Bible for all it's worth. He answers questions on the basis of careful research and sound reasoning, and he interviews many of today's most significant uh, leaders in the Christian in the Christian realm. The thing that I like the best about him is that he does not take any quarter in terms of places where uh, leading Christian thinkers get it wrong. And he also, obviously, stands in the path and stands in the way of what we would call cults. Now, a lot of those cults are not just you know, splinter groups of other religions. Many of those cults are people who have taken Christianity in an almost uh, Jim Jones style of approach, twisted them into something that is very worldly, very greedy, and very dangerous. So I appreciate the fact that Hank Hanegraaff stands in the path of those forms of, of aberrant behavior or perhaps even evil behavior. When you speak about truth, it's easy for people to get confused and to think that the person who's using those words is speaking arrogantly because the whole notion of truth to some strikes them as false, strikes them as one person lording it over another person or one group of people using their power to tell other people what to do. Uh, You know, I guess the best answer that I've got for that is I don't think that I agree with everything Hank Hanegraaff has to say. So even though I think that he personally is standing for truth and that um, we're he is closest to what the Bible truly says. I'm right there with him. But every now and then, he will find himself in a place where his interpretation of the Bible has led him to make certain decisions, which I frankly disagree with. Over time, I'm going to get to a couple of those because there are issues where I think that the closer the issue is to the political side of 
of our society. And the further away it is from what Jesus said, in other words, areas where Jesus had nothing to say or very little to say, then he and I may find ourselves adrift. Because I think it's very easy as somebody who has uh, you know, put, put himself in the position of being a defender of the faith to lose sight of places where the Bible may say things, but Jesus had very little to say about it. And how much energy do you invest in those particular issues? Now, the man's got a big heart. I do not view him as being uh, in any way a bigot or in any way homophobic. But uh, his perspective is more conservative than mine on some of the issues regarding uh, you know, some of the leading questions of the day. I'm sure that he would not be on the same page with me about prayer in school, although I'm sure he would be quick to acknowledge that, at least biblically, I've got it right. Um, because if you invest yourself in homeschooling or if you place your children in, in parochial schools, then a lot of the questions about what our Constitution says we should do and a lot of the questions about whether or not guidelines are being put in place for prayer in public schools so that people can be seen on the street corner, so to speak, so you can be publicly seen as good, don't necessarily apply when you're in an inherently private school environment, that even the word private school changes the rules a great deal. I'm willing to tolerate all that because I don't believe that anybody with whom I invest time has to agree with me about everything. I would prefer somebody who is reasonable and intelligent and uses good, good well-grounded arguments and documentation, even if it's scriptural documentation alone, to back up their point of view. And that certainly describes Hanegraaff. He has written one book that I would encourage anybody, even people who can't imagine ever reading a book um, from a Christian perspective. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff is the author of that one book that you should read. It is called The Apocalypse Code. It's a great book for Christians to read if they want to understand how modern Christianity gets biblical interpretation completely wrong and the devastating consequences of that and how dangerous uh, false interpretations of current events from an eschatological perspective. This whole you know, George W. Bush notion that the end times were near and he had a role to play in it, all those sort of aberrant behaviors, he calls those out and explains them in a way that any Christian who's committed to the truth of the Bible can understand and follow. But if you were not a Christian and you wanted to understand, you know, perhaps what a, a truly appropriate biblical interpretation would be, not just of end times, not just of what's going on in the Middle East today, but of a whole host of issues, um, the Apocalypse Code does an excellent job of demystifying and might catch you completely off guard. Hank Hanacraft does a better job than anybody out there, in my opinion, of putting a capital T on the word truth and then backing it up with logic, reason, faith, scripture, and tradition. Well worth a listen, especially if you've got questions about what the Bible says. His nickname, the Bible Answer Man, is well-earned. I can already tell before I get any, anywhere near editing this program that it might be the longest one I've done, but I don't want to do anything to cut short the feedback that I've received, and I'm hoping that I've done justice to the questions that have been raised. I look forward in the future to the next opportunity to do a Minding Your P's and Q's show with the next set of points that you've raised and questions that you've asked. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod.